the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Last Sunday I talked about joy. Today is Judgment Sunday. We have this icon here before us, which reminds us of the gospel reading that we heard today, which is a very startling gospel always, because it reminds us, in the gospel reading, by the way, he doesn't say this is a parable. He says this is what will be. So he's telling us very clearly what will happen at the end of time, and it is a startling reality. But there is joy. We'll get to that soon enough. It's not just the joy of being one of the sheep, by the way. First, I want to talk about the concept of my actions versus who I am. I'll start with two questions. If I change my actions, can that change who I am? Think about that. Second question is, if I change who I am, how will that change my actions? Now we could ponder these in circles forever and forever because we see that the two are definitely interrelated, who I am and what my actions are. That one informs the other, and the other informs the one. But just in those two questions, you can see one informs the other more than the other forms the one. If I am a different person, my actions will be different. If I change my actions, hopefully by God's grace, that will change who I am. So we can understand the, the importance between the two and which is relatively more important. You see, today's gospel can be wrongly interpreted in many different ways. The judgment of Christ is not about what you have done, but about who you are. When we read the gospel, we might not come to that conclusion because it very much appears to be about what I have done. But the judgment of Christ is about who I am. There's a word for that, a nice theological word, ontological. And that word, for those of you who are going, yes, he's using ontological. Ontological means who I am. So if there is an ontological change, it means there's a change in who I am. Not just the externals, not just my actions, but who I am in my very core. So salvation is ontological. It's not about what my actions are, but it's about who I am. In contrast to this, there is, instead of the ontological approach, there's the transactional approach. And this is how we often read the gospel, unwittingly. I do these certain things, and you, God, give me the thing that you said you would give me if I do these certain things. You gave me the commandments, I've done the commandments, and now you're going to give me what you said you would give me. That's a transactional approach. And this is how we approach much of our faith. And it's important to notice that both ways can be read in the gospel, the ontological approach or the transactional approach. But the transactional approach is wrong. It's wrong. And even if you were a Protestant who believed in sola fidelis, that it's only by faith alone, it's still transactional. 
I give you my faith, you give me my salvation. It's still transactional. So even if we say works don't matter, it's still transactional. And some segments of Christianity only view our salvation in this way. The most prominent example of this would be John Calvin himself, who, interestingly, he was a lawyer. And so he had these concepts of how it is that we are saved that are flatly wrong. The difference between ontological and transaction is pretty important because it tells us about who God is. Who is God? Because if we understand God in a way where he tells me what I do, I do those things, and then he gives me the things that he told me he would give me, that's a certain kind of God. If we understand God in the ontological, he wants to change who I am. He wants to come inside of me, dwell in me, and transform me. It's a different kind of God. So it's pretty important that we understand these things. And it's also important to understand who does the work. God does the work. God is the one that is coming in to transform us. To prove that the gospel is in fact ontological, there's a little curious part in this gospel. And that is the unawareness of the righteous. You notice that, right? They say to him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you drink? When did we see you a stranger and welcome you, or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? You might say sort of cynically, do they really not get it? Do they really not understand? How could they not understand? So this points to us at a change of who they are. There's an unawareness of their own righteousness. And this is a hallmark of God himself, of the quality of humility. They are so transformed inside that they don't even see the ways in which they're impacting the world. This is a good thing, by the way. This is a good thing, that lack of self-awareness. Because there's a big trap in self-awareness, if I can go off on a little important tangent. That idea of self-awareness comes in a phrase that we all use, being a good example. That's self-awareness, being a good example. I, as a priest, need to be a good example to you, so I need to do certain good actions so that you can see by my example what it is to be a Christian. You're not all priests out there, but many of you are parents, and we do this all the time, being a good example to our children. We want them to be raised in the faith, so we want to show them what a good example is of a good Christian. This is a self-awareness, and it's not a good thing. I know this might be shocking. It's not a good thing. Why is this? Because in self-awareness, in that self-awareness of being a good example, it takes it away from the ontological approach. What is the ontological approach? I am transformed. I unite myself to Christ. That's the focus. I unite myself to Christ. And what happens to happen when I unite myself to Christ? I happen to be a good example. 
But like those in the gospel, I'm not aware of it. I'm not fully aware of it, really. Right? It's better if I'm not aware of it. So my being a good example is not something that I'm consciously thinking about, but rather I'm thinking I'm uniting myself to Christ, and that's it. That's the end of the story. I'm uniting myself to Christ. So how does this look in actual practice? Let's talk about a common example as parents. Praying with our children. Praying with our children. If any of you have been a parent, you know that's a struggle, right? But we need to be a good example. We need to show them the right way, so we need to pray with them. And how many times I can speak for myself. It's late at night, we're putting them to bed, and we have these prayers that we need to say, and I'm so tired, and we just kind of either don't say the prayers, or I just kind of rush through them and say them. I've forgotten what it's about. Because I'm so focused on being an example that I don't think about, actually, I need these words. These are the words that I need. When we have an approach that is focused entirely upon uniting ourselves with Christ, everything slowly becomes transformed. Because our children actually can see when we don't want to say our prayers. They can see when we're tired. They can see when we're rushing. We're not as uh, opaque as we might imagine ourselves to be. It's important that everything that we do as Christians is in this ontological approach, which is, I want to be transformed by Christ himself. I want to unite myself to Christ himself. This must be our focus in everything that we do. And in this, yes, as it happens, as those in the gospel are evident, they do good works. They transform the world around them. But this comes not from them desiring to transform the world around them, not from them desiring to show good works, to be a good example, but from them desiring Christ, from them desiring to unite themselves to Christ. Because as I said, judgment day is not a judgment of our actions. It's a judgment of the status of our heart. What do I really want? St. Paisios explains how judgment is not God's arbitrary decision. We often think of it that way. You go here and you go there. Judgment is not that at all. Judgment is really our own judgment. And he talks about how we have our sins revealed to us. We stand on judgment day completely naked. Everything is revealed. And we stand there and we go, Yes, Lord. This is who I really am. Whether to the one way or to the other way. Everything is revealed. So judgment is not God deciding so much as it is we deciding through the course of our lives what the outcome will be. We get to decide. We get to decide. At every moment of our life, we get to decide. And then the judgment is the culmination of all those decisions that we've already been making. So let's get to the joy, shall we? The joy is that God wants to save us. He desires it more than we desire it, far more than we desire it. And he wants to save all of us. All of us. Every single person he's ever created, he wants to save. In case you weren't clear about that, let's turn back to the gospel again. 
Where is it that the righteous go? Come, O blessed of my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the beginning, from the foundation of the world. Where are the unrighteous going? Depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. There's only one place we're supposed to be. And there's only one place that God wants us to be. So it seems like a very simple equation, right? We want to, we, God wants us there, and that's the only place that we're supposed to be. But what's the one part? Our freedom. In our freedom, we can reject what God has ordained for us. And so, yes, on Judgment Day, we might even say with pain and sadness, he says, here's what you wanted. Here's what you wanted. So the joy is that God wants us to be saved. As I mentioned last week, that beautiful Greek word, omnisikakos, the one who does not remember evil, the one who forgets evil. He wants to forget all of our sins. And if it was a transactional approach, maybe that would be a little easier. He could just say, well, I'll just erase them all, come to heaven anyway. But that doesn't change who I am. Because if I don't really want God, God is not going to force himself upon me. He'll keep trying. He will keep knocking on my door day in and day out. He will keep me alive long enough so that he can knock on my door as much as possible before the day of my death. He will do all of that, but he will not force himself upon me. So we understand that God wants our salvation. When we stand before the judgment seat, this should be a joyful thing, fearful and yet joyful, because God wants us. God desires us. He's trying to transform each of us, to change us, to reveal to us who we truly are. God, after all, doesn't want obedient slaves. He wants to dwell in us and to sanctify us. The final good news of today is you're not dead yet. This is good news, right? It means you still have time. Furthermore, our time of death is appointed by God. So what does that also mean? God sees there's more work to do in your life. God sees there's more hope, there's greater hope, and that there's still time for transformation. And thus, he's kept you alive. Because when that moment is that there's no more change possible, that's when he will bring you to your death. So you're still alive. This is good news. And every year the church brings us this judgment day so that we can remember you're still alive, but you won't be forever. You won't be forever. So now, as long as you have your breath, now is the time for transformation. Now is the time to pursue God in all that we do. My brothers and sisters, Judgment Day is not a courtroom. Or if it is a courtroom, we could say it's rigged. Because the judge wants to save us. He wants to save us. It is we, ultimately, who will judge ourselves by the course of our actions. And God will crown that with his judgment. But it is our actions that bring about our judgment. So let us look forward, enjoy 
to the transformation that God still has for us. We're still alive. The transformation is still possible. Never lose hope for that. Never lose hope for that. If nothing else, you can say, well, God still kept me alive. So there's hope in that. We can never lose hope. As a final note, as we enter into Great Lent, I want to offer one more piece of advice, which is don't take the wrong medicine. As an example of this, the because during Lent and the Triodium, the hymns can be rather sobering. Rather sobering indeed. I'll give an example of this from last night. Listen to this hymn and hear what catches you. What is the theme here? Alas, dark soul of mine, how long will you delay cutting off your wicked ways? How long will you just lie there in idleness? Why not bring to mind the awful hour of death? Why not shudder, picturing the dread judgment seat of the Savior? Tell me, what will be your defense? How will you respond? The evidence of what you did will be presented. Your own actions will accuse you and condemn you. Oh, my soul, it is almost time. So run before it is too late, and in faith cry out, I have sinned, O Lord, I have sinned against you, but I know your compassion, O lover of humanity. So I pray, O good shepherd, please do not deny me a place at your right hand in your great mercy. How many of you, in hearing that hymn, heard the focus upon our sinful self, how horribly sinful we are, how just completely almost beyond hope we are. And how many of you heard a message of hope in God's mercy? Some of you are one way and some of you are the other way. Some of us tend in our spiritual lives towards despair and some of us in our spiritual lives tend toward not enough awareness of our sins, which we could call pride. It's important as we go into Great Lent that we understand this about ourselves because some of the medicine that the church gives us in the hymns, you might say, it's just not the right medicine for me. It's good medicine, don't get me wrong, but for me it might not be the right medicine. So it's okay in our weakness to say, I'm just going to set this aside. But there are times when we'll hear hymns that really pierce us. Some of them pierce us in the right way, and that's the good medicine. And some of us pierce us in not quite the right way, lead us towards despair or lack of hope. So I just wanted to say that little note. As we go into Great Lent, look for the right medicine for you. Because a church is a whole pharmacy. We have many different medicines, and some medicines, we have to say in humility, are just not the right medicine for me. My brothers and sisters, God loves you, and he desires you to be saved. It's the simplest equation in the world. Our only problem is that we don't always want God. And that right there is the source of where we can make our transformation. God will change who I am. What I need to do is offer him my willingness. I just need to say to God, look, here's my rottenness, here's my sinfulness, here's my brokenness, Help me, Lord. That's what we call repentance. If I do that every moment of every day of my life, God will transform me. So be bold to look into your sin, to bring it forward to God, because he desires your transformation. 
Amen.